Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is your deep dive recap of the just completed February argument session, which generated a ton of news. Uh, the session was jam packed with closely watched arguments on abortion, finance, and immigration. We also got an early dose of 5 4 opinions along party lines and a huge grant for next term of yet another Obamacare case. At the end of the episode, we're going to bring on Brian Frizzell from the Constitutional Accountability Center to talk about one of those important financial cases, SELA Law against Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We're also going to talk about Chief Justice Roberts' latest rare public defense of his judicial colleagues, this time Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. First, Kimberly, you want to start us off with the big Obamacare grant for next term? Well, sure. Of course, the Supreme Court already has two Obamacare cases that it's going to be deciding this term. Uh, But this grant is much bigger. So on March 2nd, the Supreme Court agreed to take up a case that once again puts the fate of President Obama's signature health care legislation, the Affordable Care Act, on the line. And just a little bit of background, uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, more commonly known as Obamacare, was passed in 2010. And it had several key components, uh, one of which was the so-called individual mandate, which requires individuals to maintain health insurance. Now, for those who did not comply with that mandate, they were required to pay what's called a shared responsibility payment. And in 2012, in NFIB versus Sebelius, the Supreme Court narrowly upheld Obamacare and the individual mandate. And surprisingly for many court watchers, Chief Justice John Roberts actually voted with his more liberal colleagues to uphold the individual mandate uh, as a valid use of Congress's taxing power. And to do that, he had to interpret the shared responsibility payment as a tax uh, rather than a penalty. So we're going to fast forward to December of 2017 when Republicans passed a series of tax cuts. And in doing so, they effectively eliminated the shared responsibility payment. So subsequently, there were legal challenges to the law and to the individual mandate arguing that now that there's no longer a tax, uh, the individual mandate can't be upheld as a valid use of Congress's taxing power. Moreover, those challenging the individual mandate said that it was such a key piece of the legislation that really without it, the whole statute must fall. Basically, they're saying that the court can't simply read out the individual mandate without essentially rewriting the whole statute, something that it just can't do. So the district court in Texas actually agreed with both arguments. uh, And the Fifth Circuit uh, also agreed that the individual mandate was now unconstitutional. But it sent the case back to the district court uh, to take another closer look at this severability issue. Now, blue states and Congress asked the Supreme Court to weigh in to not wait for the lower court. And that's what the Supreme Court agreed to do. And so now the court will hear this case next term, uh, probably in October or November, right when uh, the 2020 presidential election is in full swing. I bet that we will hear a lot about the Trump administration's position in this case, uh, which they argue that actually the individual mandate is unconstitutional, uh, but that it should be severed from the rest of the statute upholding many of the other um, important regulations um, that the Affordable Care Act gave us. Keeping with uh, controversial issues, we don't, we've only had a handful of opinions so far this term, right? But Twelve. Twelve. Uh, although that could change uh, by the time. Two and a half. 
<laughs> two and a half handfuls. Two and a half handfuls. Uh, that could change by the time this podcast comes out. Um, but as of the recording of this podcast, uh, 12 opinions. Right. And the justices in their public remarks will always point out that they're usually unanimous and they don't like all the focus on the 5-4 decisions, but they've already uh, pumped out a few of those, including on a, a case that we've been following for a while, uh, Hernandez against Mesa. What's going on in that one, Kimberly? Right. So this is uh, one of those 5-4 cases that you talked about. Um, interestingly, uh, although there are a lot of different lineups um, in close cases last term with a lot of the conservative justices crossing over uh, to join their more liberal colleagues, all of the 5-4 cases this term have been along ideological lines uh, with the five more conservative justices of the majority against the four more liberal justices. So that's the way that um, Hernandez versus Mesa came out. And as you mentioned, we've been following this for a long time because this is actually the second time that the case has come up to the Supreme Court. And it involves a really tragic set of facts uh, involving a 2010 cross-border shooting of a 15-year-old Mexican teenager, Sergio Hernandez. Now, the interesting part about this case is that Hernandez was actually standing on the Mexican side of the border when he was shot by a U.S. Border Patrol agent. Now, his family has tried to bring what's known as a Bivens suit, uh, named after a 1971 ruling that found that people can sue federal officers for constitutional violations. But really, in the last uh, few decades, the Supreme Court has really been pulling back on that Bivens case and saying that people can't really bring a lot of these suits. And that really culminated in 2017 when the Supreme Court said that these are really disfavored claims. Uh, So... Hernandez, the Supreme Court said that you know, the Bivens claim couldn't be brought in the context of a cross-border shooting. It's something that we already suspected was the case, but now we know for sure. All right. And uh, I'll note two other 5-4 opinions so far briefly. Uh, one came in a death penalty case. Of course, uh, court watchers will remember last term was an especially heated one in terms right. of the, the death penalty. And uh, this case in McKinney against Arizona, I wouldn't say that it had Uh, the same vitriol as some of those uh, late night orders did from last term that we uh, talked about last year, but there's still time in this. In this, oh yeah, a lot term. of time. Uh, but this one, uh, despite that, nonetheless, was still a five-four decision. It was a procedurally complex case. Uh, but James Aaron McKinney, uh, he was convicted of multiple murders in the early '90s. But he had argued on appeal that courts failed to properly take into consideration uh, evidence of his post-traumatic stress disorder as mitigation evidence and. Uh, much more recently, after years of appeals, he got a appeals court to say that uh, courts should have taken that into account. But the question was, now that his case is up for a, a resentencing or a reweighing of factors, uh, the question was whether McKinney got to get that resentencing in front of a jury in instead of a judge, because cases had uh, come out since he was convicted in the 90s saying that juries will need to uh, find facts increasing a, per- a person's uh, sentence, including uh, a sentence leading to a death sentence. But the court, uh, in an opinion, a 5-4 opinion with the Republican-appointed justices in the majority, uh, ruled against McKinney in a case that uh, will affect him and, as he put it, uh, 20 prisoners in Arizona alone, including him. Uh, So that was one of those 5-4 cases. And another one uh, came in the subject, again, of criminal law, but also immigration. Immigration, yeah. Keeping with the theme of this term, really, if you, this term in one word is just immigration. Uh, There's so much of it. And so this was a Kansas case where there were prosecutions for 
ID theft, and this was uh, the conduct was for using uh, people's social security numbers to uh, be able to work. These were uh, immigrants who uh, didn't have social security numbers otherwise, and the argument was that the prosecutions were preempted by federal law because immigration is uh, sort of more of a, a federal thing in general. But in that case, the again, 5-4 uh, with the Republican-appointed justices in the majority, they ruled that those state prosecutions in Kansas were actually uh, not preempted. And so those were uh, yet a couple more 5-4 uh, opinions to get the term started, opinion-wise. You know, nothing really heats up the justices more than preemption, right? That's, that's where you see yeah. all the 5-4 Well, five, there were different cases. types of preemption. There was... Uh, it was a partial agreement. Oh, in the okay, dissent. okay. I don't want to talk about it. You don't it. want to talk about it? There was, they agreed, the dissenters, that there was no express preemption, but they said it was implied preemption. A little bonus preemption action for oh, you preemption listeners out there. I just took a nap. Okay. So now that we're uh, all awake again, let's get into some arguments. What do you say? Sure. Sounds like a good idea. So one of the immigration cases or cases involving immigration was stemming from the prosecution of Evelyn Sinening Smith, who was an immigration consultant in California, but she was prosecuted uh, for her fraudulent scheme of uh, defrauding immigrants who she said would help them get green cards by applying for this labor certification program. But it turns out that she knew that they actually weren't eligible for it. And so one of the laws that she was prosecuted under was a law that punishes encouraging or inducing illegal immigration. And so no one's really saying that she's not a, a fraudster, but the bigger question was that it implicates free speech issues. Advocates, whether it's groups of lawyers, human rights workers, other types of advocates were saying that it could punish uh, even a loving grandmother who encourages her grandson to overstay his visa by saying, I encourage you to stay. So uh, even though that wasn't what was happening in this case, uh, obviously the justices are always concerned with the implications of their decision. And we actually saw that in the argument where uh, Chief Justice Roberts actually brought up the he latched on to the grandma issue. And you can hear that here. Hold on to your grandma. Well, let's suppose, you know, a, a, a grandmother uh, whose granddaughter is in the United States illegally, uh, t tells the granddaughter, you know, I hope you will stay because, you know, I will miss you. Things will not get better if you go back. So I encourage you to stay. That, that, uh, that would be illegal under the statute, right? Justice Kavanaugh, uh, worrying about charities. You can hear that here. What about a charity? So a charity provides food to someone who's in the country unlawfully. And, so of course, Breyer, Justice Breyer, he always has to get into the action asking about uh, landladies, well, worrying about them being relevant. prosecuted, too. And, indeed, it is, it is uh, the landlady who says to the person, you always have a place here, knowing that that person is illegally in the United States. Or, so we'll see uh, what you know, the court can, does with that case, uh, but seems like the Justice Department has a, a tough road ahead in trying to revive this law that was uh, struck down by the Ninth Circuit. All right. And then the next week, uh, the Supreme Court heard a very uh, highly anticipated case on abortion. And that's because this is the first abortion case that the Supreme Court has heard since yep. President Trump's nominees um, have gotten on the bench. It involves a Louisiana law that requires abortion doctors to get admitting privileges uh, at local hospitals. And if that sounds familiar to you, that's because the Supreme Court struck down a similar law out of Texas uh, just back in 2016. 
Now, the question here is whether or not the Louisiana law is any different than the Texas law that was struck down by the Supreme Court. Uh, But there's also a really interesting uh, standing question. I know I just said that really interesting standing question. Um, Wow. (laughs) But it is really interesting. So the standing question actually could have some pretty big ramifications. And the issue there is whether or not doctors and clinics can actually bring challenges to abortion laws and abortion restrictions on behalf of their patients or whether or not the patients have to bring it them themselves. As I mentioned, there was a lot of discussion about the standing issue at the oral arguments. Um, RBG was very on brand, uh, coming out the first question of the day being one on civil procedure and standing. Would you have done anything different if it had been, if the third party standing had been timely raised? Your Honor, we certainly could have submitted additional evidence in the court, but we believe that the evidence that is already there is sufficient to find third-party standing. This court has squarely found third-party standing in at least four abortion cases that are on point, as well as a number of other cases, such as Meyer, Craig, Carey. And the court's cases have been consistent in saying that a plaintiff who is directly regulated by a law has third-party standing. Would you agree with the general proposition that a party should not be able to sue ostensibly to protect the rights of other people if there is a real conflict of interest between the party who is suing and those whose rights the party claims to be attempting to defend? No, Your Honor, not if that party is directly regulated by the law in question. And, in fact, this Court has allowed third-party standing in cases where the State argued that the third parties were protected by the law and, in a sense, protected from the plaintiff. Really, that's amazing. You think Speaking that of standing, there was an issue that day of the argument with some of the lawyers standing in line, right? Yeah, there was. So we heard from a couple of attorneys who were standing in the bar line that they were actually asked by Supreme Court police officers to remove hats that said uh, that were from the Center for Reproductive Rights. And in particular, they were told that it could appear to somebody passing by that the Supreme Court actually endorsed uh, the message on their hats. Um, Interestingly, the advocates were not standing on the Supreme Court Plaza. This is like real Supreme Court uh, architecture inside baseball. Uh, right. Well, the reason that's important is because the Supreme Court really restricts uh, the kind of speech that can happen on the plaza, and that law has been upheld. Uh, but on the public sidewalks, there's really not supposed to be any restrictions. And so uh, there's some contention that you know the Supreme Court, who really – uh, has vigorously protected First Amendment rights uh, in recent terms, is actually limiting it pretty significantly um, on its own doorstep. That was just one of the sort of outside the court issues that took place on the day of the abortion argument. Another one. Oh, um, right. I forgot. I, I even forgot about this. There was a lot of news. Yeah. And so we had uh, Senator Schumer, not sure exactly what he was thinking, but he decided to, um, well, I'll put it like, you know, it takes a lot to get Chief Justice Roberts to to weigh in on these uh, public remarks against judges. He, he did it notably once previously uh, when in response to one of President Trump's many attacks on the federal judiciary. Um, but this time there was a rally outside of the court the day of this abortion argument and Senator Schumer had uh, this to say about some of the justices. For the first major abortion right cases since Justices Kavanaugh 
and Justices Gorsuch came to the bench. We know what's at stake. Over the last three years, women's reproductive rights have come under attack in a way we haven't seen in modern history. From Louisiana to Missouri to Texas, Republican legislatures are waging a war on women, all women, and they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Wow. You know, Chief Justice Roberts, after a day of, you know, probably being the the swing vote in this uh, abortion case, he pulled a administrative duty and issued a, a statement later that day, uh, basically calling out Schumer by name and saying that that sort of remark is dangerous and the justices are going to continue to to do their work without fear or favor, no matter uh, what quarter it comes from. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I saw a lot of um, criticism of the chief justice for speaking out about uh, Senator Schumer's comments, but not speaking out about um, some of the attacks that you alluded to from the president himself. And so we saw the president call on Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor to recuse uh, in cases involving him. And, you know, we didn't see the chief justice responding then. So a lot of questions about what it is that prompted him to weigh in here um, and how and how these are really different. Let's turn to our guest, Brian Frizzell. Uh, Brian is appellate counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. He's also worked on Supreme Court cases previously as the Supreme Court Assistance Project Fellow at Public Citizen Litigation Group. We're happy to have Brian on today to discuss CELA law against Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, Brian and his colleagues at the Constitutional Accountability Center filed an amicus brief on behalf of current and former members of Congress in support of the Bureau. Brian, thanks for joining us on cases and controversies to help us break down this important case. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. So there's a lot going on in this case, and there's a lot going on in the argument, as we'll be getting into. But just, Brian, maybe you can help us kind of set the stage of of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and how this case uh, wound up getting to the court. Sure. So as uh, many of your listeners will already know, the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, was created in 2010 by the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, It was one of the most significant reforms in that act um, coming out of the financial crisis of 2008. And Congress, you know, after looking at the crisis, uh, concluded that one of the prime causes of uh, the financial crisis was the fact that the consumer laws, which were designed to prevent predatory mortgage lending, um, had not been adequately enforced. And the reason Congress found was that those responsibilities were actually divvied up among a range of federal agencies, each of which regulated different types of financial institutions. And none of those agencies had made consumer protection a priority. And so what Congress decided to do in the Dodd-Frank Act was to consolidate all those powers in one agency uh, that would you know, be exclusively focused on that important mission. Um, and in doing so, um, Congress made the agency an independent agency, which is a concept I'm sure we'll talk about as the conversation progresses. Um, and unlike some independent agencies, in fact, unlike the majority, uh, this new agency was not going to be led by a multi-member board or commission, but rather by a single director. 
So that's uh, the, the backdrop on the CFPB in, in brief form. So then fast forward a few years, um, and we get to the facts of this particular case, Salem Law. And in this instance, you know, the facts, the brief facts of the case are significant because there have been arguments raised about why the court maybe shouldn't even decide the constitutional issue in this case um, because of the, the posture in which it arises. Um, so uh, Sela Law Firm is a firm in California that provides debt relief services, and the CFPB wanted to investigate it for possible violations of certain consumer financial protection laws. In response, Sela argued, as a number of financial institutions have done in other cases uh, involving the CFPB, that the uh, demand was invalid because the leadership structure of the CFPB is unconstitutional. Um, the district court rejected that argument, and the Ninth Circuit um, also rejected the argument, affirming the district court. So Sela then uh, petitioned for cert from the Supreme Court. Now, at that point, there was no circuit split on this question, um, but there, were, uh, there had been lengthy dissents in the uh, D.C. Circuit case, um, and in fact, that uh, en banc opinion had reversed an earlier panel decision by um, what was then Judge Kavanaugh, um, holding that the Bureau is unconstitutional. Um, so cert was granted. Uh, here's the interesting part, though. By, by the time that cert was granted, the Department of Justice had taken the position that the leadership structure of the Bureau is unconstitutional. And under the uh, Senate-confirmed director of the Bureau under the Trump administration, the CFPB itself had come to agree that the structure was unconstitutional. And so there was that so left nobody... So just to kind of pause on that, because that sure. is an interesting point. We have sort of the the government itself saying basically its own entity is unconstitutional. Is that a correct way of putting it? That's right. But uh, to be more precise, the both the DOJ and the CFPB took issue with one particular aspect of the uh, structure of the CFPB, and that is the fact that it is led by a single director, and the director cannot be removed or fired at will by the president. The president can only fire the director if the standard that is in Dodd-Frank is met, and that standard is uh, inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. So we actually saw Justice Ginsburg uh, kind of ask Solicitor General Noel Francisco about the DOJ's decision not to defend uh, the constitutionality of the CFPB. Isn't it uncommon for the Department of Justice not to defend the statute passed by Congress. How often has the SG declined to defend legislation adopted by Congress? Uh, Your Honor, I don't have the precise number, but the general rule is that we defend the acts of Congress unless it infringes upon the President's own executive power. And here we believe that we have a statute that infringes upon the President's own executive power. Has that been the position of the uh, Department of Justice, or is this a new position? I believe that that is the long-standing position of the Department of Justice. That the general presumption that we will defend acts of Congress has an exception built in when the act of Congress infringes upon the president's own executive power, uh, and that's what we have here. I mean, in this particular context, in the in the context of a restriction on the president's removal power? Uh, Your Honor, I, I 
don't know the exact answer to that question. I believe, although uh, I'd want to double-check on this, that in Bowsher, the executive branch did not defend the removal restriction. That was at issue. I believe in Free Enterprise Fund they did defend the removal restriction at issue. I cannot recall what their position was in Humphrey's executor in Myers. I don't believe they defended the removal restriction that Congress had enacted. General, but, isn't it true that the Department of Justice has refused to defend uh, the constitutionality of other federal statutes, even when the president's removal power is not at issue? Yes, Your Honor. For example, I'm simply the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, what did you make of that, that exchange? Well, you know, I think it was interesting. Um, I think that perhaps, you know, there is some value in the justices keeping the um, Justice Department accountable for uh, both changes in policy that come with a new administration, as well as decisions not to um, defend federal law. Um, on the other hand, and just to point out, actually, on the, the, the Department of Justice did in earlier proceedings defend okay, the legitimacy so just, of the Bureau. Um, you know, there are a bunch of memorable moments from the, the argument we had, you know, as you mentioned, because the uh, Justice Department wasn't uh, defending the structure of the Bureau, the court had appointed an amicus, uh, Paul Clement, to argue the case. So that provided yet another sort of interesting dynamic to the argument because most court, court watchers uh, will recognize Paul Clement as being someone who is advocating on behalf of typically uh, more conservative clients, very conservative clients. So here he was in sort of a arguably liberal position, almost kind of the complete opposite of what we'll see him doing. So that provided sort of another interesting flavor to the argument, right? That's right. And in fact, the, the posture of the argument uh, and the issues that are now at play Pretty complex as a result of that choice, I think, because you have uh, Paul Clement defending the Bureau, as you said, um, a surprising choice, but um, in many ways, perhaps a sensible one. Um, We should also note that this was uh, Clement's 101st argument. So this was um, not just, uh, you know, the the court appointed a very experienced lawyer to to take on this task, not just one being conservative, but just a completely, uh, a very well-respected advocate, to say the least. Yeah, you couldn't really ask for better in terms of credentials. Um, and, you know, it, it, interestingly, um, what Clement has done is to not only defend the legitimacy of the Bureau on the merits, um, you know, arguing uh, that the Bureau is in fact constitutional, but he's also raised an interesting argument, uh, several interesting arguments about why the court perhaps should not resolve the constitutional question at all. But another interesting facet is that although the Department of Justice and Sela Law, the challenger, although they both agree that the Bureau's structure is unconstitutional, they disagree about what follows from that. Um, among other things, the Justice Department, as I mentioned, believes that the if the Bureau is invalid, uh, that the removal provision should be severed from Dodd-Frank leaving the Bureau in place. Um, Sela Law has uh, rejected that position, um, arguing in the first instance that the court shouldn't even address questions of severability, but as a fallback, arguing that if if the Bureau's leadership, leadership structure is unconstitutional, the remedy is to strike down the entire Title 10 of Dodd-Frank, which is the section creating the Bureau. So in other words, striking down the Bureau entirely, which would be pretty dramatic. And just to kind of tease that out a bit, what what would be so dramatic about that? Well, among other things, it would mean that this 
very large and significant agency would immediately cease to exist. Um, you know, just remember, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, these consumer financial protection laws can not only be valuable in order to, you know, benefit individual consumers and their families, but, you know, when things go wrong in that sphere, it can really destabilize the entire economy. And that's what happened in 2008. So that would be pretty dramatic in its own right. Um, another facet of this is that there are some logistical reasons that, that this would be a really, really a destabilizing development. Because as I mentioned, the, most of the Bureau's authorities previously were vested in different federal agencies. Uh, but there's no, if the Bureau is struck down, there's no easy way for those responsibilities to go back to those agencies. In fact, one of them no longer even exists. Focusing back to Clement's argument, there was a really interesting and probably you could say heated exchange with Justice Gorsuch, who uh, Gorsuch seemed to be getting frustrated with Clement's argument. Um, On on the merits, what do we do with the fact, um, and I'm sure you've given this great thought, that if we were to approve uh, single-member agencies um, without any presidential removal power, let's just suppose that, um, we would run into questions about the cabinet, for example, um, which are just agencies, right? So what, how would you have the court write an opinion to distinguish this case from that? So I, I, I want to be responsive, but I want to point out that I don't think... Great. But, but just to point out at starters, you don't avoid drawing a line by adopting the Solicitor General's position. I understand that. Okay, because I but don't now think... now if you could answer my question. Sure. So I would draw it the same place I think he would draw it. So I don't think he said, would say that you can eliminate the State Department by creating a multi-member commission on foreign affairs. That's not my question, Mr. Clement. If you could answer my question, I'd be I, grateful. I am, my question is, what if Congress tomorrow revived the Tenure in Office Act, all right, well, and said presidents can't remove without uh, a whole bunch of conditions, not Senate approval, okay, but something else that looks a lot like that. Uh, wouldn't that be a problem with the Constitution? Absolutely. Okay. Then, then how do we distinguish this case from that one? So I think there's two. We, I offer you two limiting principles, which I think is two more than the Solicitor General has offered you. But here's the first. The first if we is. To avoid disparaging our colleagues and just answer my question, I would be grateful. First, there is a structural limitation. So they can't put somebody essentially in the cabinet or in the White House staff and then have that person subject to, uh, for cause removal. Second, there's a constitutional backstop, an absolute constitutional backstop, which is those authorities that the Constitution assigns directly to the President, so the State Department, the Defense Department, pardon power, there's a few others, those cannot be subject under any circumstances to anything other than at-will removal. How about and I the- didn't mean to disparage my colleague. I was just saying the same limiting principle ultimately has to be in place for multi-member commissions. Brian, can you talk a little bit about you know, from your view, sort of why you think it was that Gorsuch was getting frustrated and setting a bit of the backdrop for that, too? Sure. It was definitely a, a surprising moment that, that stood out. And um, you could sort of, even over in the lawyer's lounge at the court where I was, um, since I didn't make it into the courtroom itself. And for people who don't know what that is, Brian, the, you know, oh, yeah, the sure. lawyer's lounge is, is what exactly? So um, at the courthouse, there's a, um, a special 
section in the courtroom for members of the Supreme Court bar, um, which means that fortunately, if you're a member of the bar, you don't have to stand in the public line outside the court and you know get there at five in the morning. Um, on the other hand, it's limited seating. And so um, when that uh, section fills up, there's a uh, lounge um, elsewhere in the courthouse that provides live audio of the argument. And so you were about to give us all the gossip about what was happening in the lawyer's lounge during this uh, <laughs> during this heated exchange between Clement and Justice Gorsuch, right? Well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, what I can tell you is that it was definitely a, um, a tense exchange, and I imagine that those in the courtroom probably felt the Arctic chill from the, uh, the exchange between the two. Um, but, you know, I think it was actually a... It was not only, um, I would say, you know, a dramatic exchange, but it actually, because of the question that was being discussed, it goes to one of the really interesting issues in the case. So it's not unusual for Justice Gorsuch to get a little bit combative with the advocates. I've seen that in other cases, Mm -hmm. um, particularly when um, he believes that they are not properly answering his question or addressing his concerns. Um, You know, seen situations in which you might say he was perhaps badgering the attorney. But this was especially stark. Um, And I'm not sure I can offer an explanation of why uh, the justice was so harsh. But it was it was an interesting moment in which Paul Clement was was trying to make um, a very central point in this case. And so the, the question that was posed to him by Justice Gorsuch was the following. Um, if it's constitutional for Congress to make um, an agency like the CFPB, in which it is led by a single director, not by a board, and the, the director cannot be fired at will by the president, What's the limiting principle? Why can't um, Congress do that to uh, cabinet agencies, cabinet departments, for instance, make the Secretary of State or Treasury um, removable only for specified causes? And so one of the things that Clement was, was trying to get across before explaining what he sees as the limiting principle is that that question isn't really presented in this case, because even if you accept the arguments that are being made by, say, the law and by the Justice Department, you have the same problem, because theoretically, Congress could change the Treasury Department into a multi-member um, agency, which, say, the law and the Justice Department say is um, totally fine to do um, and to impose good cause restrictions um, on the head of that agency. But what they are arguing in this case is that, you know, those kinds of independent agencies that are led by multi-member boards or commissions, those have, you know, been approved by the court in the past, and the court doesn't need to overrule that precedent. What, what they're arguing is that the court should not, as they put it, extend that precedent to an agency with a single director. Well, so Brian, so aside from the this question of whether it's a single uh, head or multi-member agency, you know, there, there are some arguments that can go either way on that. But one last point I wanted to raise before we get into the broader takeaways from the argument, um, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, brought up, uh, he focused on an interesting aspect, which was not so much the single versus multi-member, but the, the time over which the director is in charge of the CFPB. How much does it matter that the uh, tenure of the single director continues into the next president's term, because I think that's when the problem really reveals itself, that the next president is going to have to deal for his or her whole term, potentially, with a CFPB director 
appointed by this president and will not be able to supervise or direct that person, even if that president has a wildly different mm-hmm. conception of consumer financial protection. Right. Isn't that just I kind of a, a weird situation, no matter what your politics are, because you never know who the next uh, president is going to be for a president to be stuck with somebody who someone else appointed. Yeah, so it, it's, it's a valid point as far as it goes in to the extent that if a new president comes in, perhaps from a different party or with a different viewpoint, the president may have a director of the agency that doesn't uh, share the same policy views or the same policy priorities as the president. And it may take uh, several years, as Justice Kavanaugh pointed out, before the president has an opportunity to um, appoint a new director. But again, that goes back to the question of whether that's really any different from the situation with multi-member independent agencies. Because if you think about the structure of most of those agencies, they've got five members, seven members, um, the vacancies become open you know, on a periodic basis. It can often take several years into a new president's term before that president has the opportunity to appoint a majority of the the border commission. And so it's another, you know, it's another instance in my view of how this distinction between single and multi-member agencies may not be as clean or as neat as the challengers are portraying it. Well, um, we could keep talking about this argument uh, for a long time and we would encourage listeners to, you know, just listen to the whole thing too because it was uh, a fascinating one. But let's emerge from the weeds a bit and Brian, let's see if maybe we could get you to wager a an educated guess as to how this case is going to turn out and what the implications of that will be. <laughs> sure. So I got to say, this is a, is a tough one to predict, and I'm sure you hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's tough to make predictions about, uh, especially about the future, right? <laughs> of course. But I think it's especially hard in this case because um, a number of different options have been presented to the court of, of how to resolve the case. And it's it's difficult to game out exactly um, how those might all play out. But I do think I can at least speak to a few outcomes that I think are not likely um, based on you know what I've seen so far. Sure. Um, I, I don't think it's uh, likely that the court will do what say the law is asking it to do, which is just to invalidate the civil investigative demand and then just stop there uh, without addressing severability. Um, that sounds like a, a modest approach, um, but it, really the implications would be anything but modest because it would leave this cloud over everything that the CFPB does. Um, and I just I don't see that as particularly likely. Uh, I think that if, additionally, if the court does rule against the Bureau. I don't think it will overrule the decades of precedent that have said in general that independent agencies are constitutional. Um, I think what is more likely to happen if the Bureau loses is that um, you'll get a ruling that distinguishes the Bureau from those agencies, perhaps on the basis of this multi-member versus single-member distinction. Um, but I also think that you know if that does happen, and if the if the court rules against the bureau, I don't think that it is going to eliminate the bureau entirely by striking down all of Title Ten in Dodd Frank. Um, and I think you could see in the argument, even um, you know, you listen to Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch. There wasn't a lot of appetite for for that outcome, in part because uh, the text of Dodd Frank itself has a severability provision. So those are the outcomes that I think are not likely. I think um, it's tough to say what will happen if the court 
addresses the merits of the constitutional question. You know, it's possible this case will come down to the chief justice. And, you know, he, I didn't hear anything especially encouraging from him. Um, you know, and by that I mean encouraging for defenders of the Bureau. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I, I don't think he played his hand either. Um, and I do think there's a real chance that either he... Uh, decides to recognize that the bureau is constitutional, constitutionally legitimate, or I, I do think there's there is uh, a real possibility that the court might decide, as a matter of prudence and constitutional avoidance, that it shouldn't decide the constitutional question in this case. Well, as in so many cases this term, it's going to be all eyes on the chief justice. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts on this really important case. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, so that was really interesting. I thought, uh, you know, one of the issues that Brian talked a little bit about was separability, which, of course, we'll, we already talked about when we chatted about Obamacare, uh, which the court will hear next term. So maybe we'll get a little sneak peek into uh, how the justices might look at severability in that case. Yeah, we'll see. That'll be one of the many blockbuster cases coming down, uh, probably all in a one week at the end of June when everything will just be going nuts. So yet another thing to look forward to. Sounds like fun. So I think that's going to do it for this week's deep dive looking at the February arguments. Watch out for our next episode, which is going to take a look at some of the cases that will be argued in March. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Oh, no. Thanks for listening. Are we doing this again, Jordan? Yep. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater... That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks for listening.